Bibles out, Bibles open. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. We are in the book of Job. Chapter 4 is where we will begin tonight. Job chapter 4, again, is a kind of a recap for those who have been with us through the first three chapters and for if you're joining us for the first time, uh, the book of Job is, is again, a kind of, a, I guess, a turning point, if you would. And, and as we go through the Old Testament, we've finished the history books and we've begun what are called the books of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, beginning with Job. Now, just because it is categorized as a, as a poetry book, if you would, Please do not misunderstand. This is absolutely history. This, this Job is a real historical character. What we are reading about took place. Um, Timing-wise, as we've mentioned, back in the time of the patriarchs, more than likely, we don't know for absolutely certain, but probably around the time of Abraham in that time frame. And we learn right away that Job was an amazing man, a godly man, uh, stood out among all other men in his time not only for his godliness, but, but the way that he acted, the way that he interacted. He was a leader. He wasn't a king, but he was a leader among, among the people. People respected him. People came to him, and he was, he was a blessing to many, as again we'll talk about in just a moment. But we get a glimpse into uh, what was going on in heaven, and it tells us that God was there, and the, and the angels were there, good and bad angels, the fallen angels, as well as Satan says that he was there and had an audience with God. And God asked him, hey, what have you been doing? He says, well, I've been out walking around, checking things out down on earth. And God said, have you noticed my man Job, how godly he is? And Satan said, well, of course he is. You've blessed him. I mean, the guy's like wealthy beyond imagination. He's got everything going for him. I tell you what, he's only worshiping you. He only loves you because of what you give him. Take all of that away, he'll curse you. And God, it tells us, gave him permission to take away all of his possessions, everything that he had. He said, but don't touch him physically. And then we, we saw that in one day, Job lost everything, all of his possessions, all of, all of his livestock, all of his, his servants, everything. But on top of all of that, he had 10 children and they all died in one day, in one tragic event. We talk about how do you categorize that? How do you deal with those things? Well, we get into chapter two. And it tells us that it got worse for Job because God, again, once again, meeting with Satan and said, have you noticed my man Job? Even after you did all of those things, his integrity is still intact. He didn't do what you said. And Satan, of course, relentless, said, well, of course, skin for skin. I mean, <laughs> you didn't let me touch him physically. He can always build back what he had. He can always have more kids. He can, always, you know, whatever. Let me touch him physically. And he'll curse you to his face. He says, all right, have your way. Only you, can, you spare his life. And we talked about then that he was smitten with boils head to toe. And the fact we looked at it, and we'll get, if we get that far tonight, we read about it, you know, that, the, that there were worms on his coming out of the sores of his body and his, his skin cracking and oozing. And he was taking broken pottery and scraping himself, trying to get some type of relief. Can't sleep, can't eat. Just horrific in the, the description. And when we look at all of that, we say, well, there's got to be an explanation. 
You know, Job asks the questions why, and when we start our study into Job, I'm sure that if you haven't been here, the first couple of weeks are saying, well, I'm here, I want to know why. Well, you know what? It's not, the book of Job is not about explanation. It's about revelation. By the time we get to the end of the the book of Job, God is going to reveal himself in great and amazing ways to Job. And we talked of that as we're going to look through this, and it's important to keep that in perspective because we don't always understand. Job didn't know what was going on up in heaven. He didn't know what was, he didn't get a chance to read the end of the book before the whole thing started. And so we learn a lot about this great man, Job, as we go through this. We learn a lot about God. We did talk about last time, he has some friends that show up on the scene, three guys. Um, and we're going to get to know them a little bit more. And again, they, they get, a, they get a, a bad rap right off the bat because of what we're going to start looking at tonight. But bottom line is, there's, these are three guys that truly did display some great friendship qualities. They came a long distance when they heard about what happened to Job. They came and they, they sat with him. He's sitting out in the garbage dump, if you would, of the city in the ashes there. And they came and they joined him there. And it says for seven days, they sat with him seven days and seven nights. They didn't say a word. They just wept and mourned with him over everything that was going on. Well, as we mentioned last time, we start into chapter three and uh, the silence is broken by Job himself. And he cries out and he says, I, he curses the day he was born. He says, I wish I had never been born, wish I had never been conceived because of all of this that was going on. He despaired even of his life. And we talked of that last time. He, was never, he would never take his own life, but crying out to God to take it and because of the suffering that he was going through. Now, we know that, that God is not silent in our trials, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And, and God uses his word to speak to us. And God uses others to speak into our situation as well. And we're going to see a whole lot of, over the next many chapters, 30 chapters-ish, somewhere in there, what not to do as people that come alongside those that are suffering. What there's going to be a lot of truths that we are going to see in these chapters that they say. But we're going to, we're going to uncover some things as, again, how, how not to do it. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I want to set this up because a couple of things. You might be, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to stick with us as we get through all of these chapters. It might take us several weeks. There might be a time when you get through to this and you're like, couldn't God have done this and explained this in three or four chapters? Because it seems like we keep coming back around and back around. And, and I, I've asked myself the question, why 30 chapters of all of this? And I think maybe part of the reason is because I hope that by the end of it, we are so sick of the, the stuff that these guys say that we would never think, never dream of coming alongside somebody with the same advice that these guys are given. And the way that it is that it is handled. Now, let's let's jump in. We're in chapter four. Eliphaz is one of the three that came, and he's going to respond after Job has spoken. Let's look at the first few verses here. Eliphaz the Temanite answered, "If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking?" Behold, you have admonished many. That means to to encourage. 
to strengthen. You have done this yourself. When, when people are suffering, you've encouraged, you've strengthened. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand and you have strengthened feeble knees. Here we see again a glimpse into, into this man, Job. He saw the suffering of other people and he got involved and he helped. And I, when, he, when it talks of strengthening, uh, strengthening weak hands, helping totter, the tottering to stand, you have strengthened feeble knees. I, was, I thought of Hebrews chapter 12, where we are called, where it says in Hebrews 12, verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strengthen, that word literally means to make straight again. It was straight, it had become come out of joint. It's a medical term basically kind of speaking of resetting a dislocated joint. I don't know if you have, any of you have ever dislocated a joint or been around somebody that has re-putting it back in. Not a pleasant experience. It helps if the person doing it has some compassion <laughs> and, and gentleness. I remember one of my good friends in, in college dislocated both of his shoulders numerous times and had actually had surgeries on both shoulders to, to, keep, to, to try to fix the problem, but they popped out really easily. And one night we were messing around in the hall, walking to go, go, go somewhere, and he jumped up and like he was going to kick me or something. I grabbed his foot and he was falling backwards and he grabbed the door handle of the door as he was going down and his shoulder pops out and it's like midnight, you know, there's, you know, and it's like, he goes, all right, you're going to have to help me get it. It's all like sticking up like this because you're going to have to help me pop it back in. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he told me how to do it. And, and the whole thing, I had to put one arm underneath here and then pull down on the other as it slowly ground back in and then pop back into place. And I just, ugh, even the thought of it again, just gets me. Yeah. <laughs> Not a pleasant experience, but needed to be done. And so we're called as Christians to come alongside those that are, that are weak, that are, that are needing that, the, the comfort that it is. But the reason why I, I, I come to this verse also, it says, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Make sure that the path is straight. And what it's talking about is the ruts that get in the road. Make sure that those are straight because if they're crooked, that can cause the joint to come out again. So it's not just that we do it, it's how we do it. It's, it's bringing truth. Galatians chapter six, and I guess to set this whole thing up, Galatians chapter six says, this, this is a truth that we should know as Christians. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's, one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone is caught in a trespass, tells us that we who are godly are to come alongside that person to restore them, a spirit of gentleness, speaking of all of that. If there is known sin in someone's life, we should, be, we should come along and do that. The problem that we're going to see as we, as we move on now from chapter four on, all of the advice that is coming from these three guys is assuming that everything that is happening in Job's life is because there's sin in Job's life. They are moving under that assumption. 
And while it is true, and we'll see this, he even, he goes down the, a little bit later, he talks about you will, you know, basically what you, you will reap what you sow. Galatians chapter six goes on to say that. That is a biblical truth. But it does not mean, please hear this, it does not mean someone is suffering, going through trials and difficulties in their life, it is because of sin in their life. And that may sound obvious. That may sound like something that we don't need to say, but guys, it is not just true in Job's day. It's true in Jesus' day, where the disciples even asked him on one occasion as they came across this man who was blind since birth. He said, they asked, was it his sin or his parents' sin that made him blind, that he's blind because of that? And Jesus said, neither. He's in this condition to glorify God right now, and Jesus heals him. And that, that's the, but bottom line is it was neither. They were assuming that because he was born blind, it had to be either his sin or his parents' sin. And so many people, even, in the, even well-meaning people in the church, can, can move along in wrong assumptions. Again, we're going to see a whole bunch of biblical truth as we move through from these guys. Though it's biblical truth, it's not always something to be used in every circumstance. Does that make sense? Two plus two is four, right? Is it ever not four? No, it's always true. Will that truth help train a child to be potty trained, to go to the bathroom? No. So continuing to say two plus two equals four, two plus two equals four, two plus two equals four, though it's true, will not help that child to become potty trained. Might get really confused, number one, number two, and uh, <laughs> enough, okay, enough bathroom humor. Let's take it a different step to make it more, I guess, applicable here. No one could disagree, whether you're a smoker or not, no one could disagree that smoking is bad for you, right? But that truth, will that help a child learn how to tie his shoe? No. But if you told him the reason you can't tie your shoe is because you, you got to quit smoking, it's only going to cause problems and confusion. That's what the problem is here. Notice he says, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? That word impatient means to grow weary, to grow tired, to become exhausted. If we're going to come to you, is that going to cause you to be, get tired if we're going to bring this truth to you? He uses the same word here next in verse 5. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. All of this difficulties, all of a sudden now you've been able to help others when they're in this problem. Now, I hope you're going to listen because here we're going to bring to you words to, to touch you. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Can't you hope, hold on to the truth that if in your integrity and in your goodness, you're not going to have problems? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent and where were the upright destroyed? Again, there it comes. The statement that says, Whoever has ever been innocent and suffered? Oh, I don't know. We could go all the way back to the very beginning, right? <laughs> we don't have to read too far and see Cain killing Abel. Was, Abel. was Abel guilty of anything when he was killed? No. 
But then we look throughout history, and obviously the greatest example we have of that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the innocent one <laughs> slain for us. But throughout church history and throughout, I mean, there's just example after example after example. This is, this is a, a ridiculous statement, but that's what they're holding on to. And perhaps even goes back a little bit to what Andy was referring to earlier. I, I appreciated where, where he was talking about, about the God that we worship. And we so often put him into a box. Because we want to be able to understand what everything that's going on. And perhaps that's why these guys are doing that. I, we got to be able to understand why this is happening. And again, we don't always find out the whys. Verse 8, again, according to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Again, so obviously I'm the expert and that's what I've seen. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. The roaring of, a lion, of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lions perish for a lack of prey and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Again, this idea that just to come on, the, the response to, to iniquity, God, God reacting out in anger. Now the word, now verse 12, now he's gonna start getting into this idea that, that um, he saw a vision and he has to bring this to, to Job. Now a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. So it happening in the evening, everybody else is sleeping. Dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face and the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. How can, how can, how, I'm sorry, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed before the moth, between morning and evening, they are broken in pieces. Unobserved, they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up with them? They die yet without wisdom. So what he's saying is, I saw this vision come. And by the way he's saying this is he's saying, Job, this is for you. God's talking to me about you. And he says this, verse 17, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Literally, he's saying, can a, can a mortal person, can one of us as human beings be righteous in God's perspective, from God's point of view? Can we, can man be clean from God's point of view? Totally, completely. Now, first of all, that's making an assumption that Job felt that way. That Job felt that he was on an even keel with God. Job never said anything of the kind. Never said anything of the like. We're going to see as we move through, he would like to know if there was sin, what it is, because he's been going back through and saying, Lord, if there's something, what is it? But he's never once put himself on par with God. But this is also, and this is where the danger again comes in. This Eliphaz is coming from a point of view that he's on a higher level than Job. Because this has happened to you, and it hasn't happened to me. 
And the, the way that it's coming across, and oh, we have to be so, again, so careful. That's one of the things that we're going to just see hammered home again and again through this, through this, is that when we are coming alongside someone, we absolutely have to do away with that. He's absolutely wrong in his thinking that he's somehow holier than Job because this is happening to Job and it's not happening to him, right? I mean, look back at verse chapter one, verse eight. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He says the same thing again in chapter two. So Eliphaz moving on that assumption, absolutely wrong. Chapter, chapter five now. Call now, he's, he's telling him, continuing now his counsel now, Because of this, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen the foolish taking root. Well, first of all, look at verse 2. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. That sounds like that could come right out of Proverbs, doesn't it? I mean, that's... Those, those things are, are principles that, are, that, that we should look at. However, again, it's not applicable in this case. It's a truth, but Job wasn't an angry guy. He wasn't a jealous man. How's this for making somebody feel good in the moment? Verse three, I have seen the foolish taking root and I cursed his abode immediately. Remember, his houses, his houses were destroyed. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate and there is no deliverer. Wow. Saying that to one who just lost seven of his sons? His harvest, the hungry devour and take it to the place of thorns and the schemer is eager for their wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust nor does trouble shoot from the ground. Job, it doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. And again, this, I can't imagine. This, these are the guys that are there to comfort him. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Saying there must be a reason, Joe. And he's almost saying, I could have called it. Wow. Here's some great advice. But as for me, I would seek God. I'd place my cause before God who does great and unsearchable things. Amen. (laughs) Unsearchable things. But we're going to see in verse 27, I've sought them all out. I got it all figured out. Wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. Yes. If he would have just, (laughs) man, if we could just do away with everything else he said. And he just comes alongside and says, man, Job, I weep with you. I cry with you. Let's seek the Lord together. The one who is great and does unsearchable things. I love this quote I heard. If you can't, un- if you can't improve on silence, don't try. Also heard that before. It says, 
it's better to keep your mouth shut and have everybody think you're a fool than open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> Again, and it goes back, verse, look back at verse, verse two. But who can refrain from speaking? That's the problem so often, isn't it? Who can? <laughs> None of us. It's like, I got to say something. God wouldn't have me here to be quiet. Again, great and awesome God. He gives rain on the earth, verse 10, chapter 5, and sends water on the fields so that he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Again, great godly counsel here. God alone will lift you up. Those who mourn are lifted to safety. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, right? I mean, these, these are truths. It was just like, man, if you could just take this little section and the rest of it just... He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd. And here it almost like it turns on him. And he starts to, instead of using it for comfort, it starts to bring accusation so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness. And the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day, they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in night. But he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. So the helpless has hope and the unrighteous must shut its mouth. Now again, here's another great, another great truth as he's beginning in verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise, despise the discipline of the Almighty. Again, can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews tells us, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when he reproves you. For those whom he loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Great truth for all believers. Again, however, not the point here. He's not being disciplined. Now, to, to cut Eliphaz a break, he doesn't know that. But guys, here's the bottom line. Unless we do. We need to stay out of that arena. Again, a great, great verse 18 comes right alongside with that. The Lord inflicts pain, yes, but he also gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. Again, just like a, a loving father disciplining his child, but then staying there lovingly. From six troubles, he will deliver you even in 
In seven, evil will not touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, I guess except for this instance. And you will not be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine. And you will not be afraid of wild beasts. For you will be in a league you will be in league with the stones of the field. And interesting, I was like, what does that mean? Bottom line, you're out plowing in the fields and, you, and basically you got to deal with all the rocks. They just get out of the way. <laughs> if you've ever been in Israel, that's a big deal. And the beast of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure and you will visit your abode and fear no loss. You will know also what the, uh, that your descendants will be many and your offspring as the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like the stacking of grain in its season. Basically, what he's saying is understand God is reproving you for sin in your life. Repent and everything can be restored. Everything can come back. It's, it's all up to you, Job. Quit hiding your sin. Quit living in it. Repent and everything can be set straight. Now look at verse 7 again. Behold this. We have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. We've investigated this, Job. The three of us had a lot of time to talk while we were walking over here, and we came to this conclusion. Don't bother us with the facts. We have made up our minds. This is the problem. Deal with it. And the issue is, if you see this, the underlying thing, can't you see the enemy right behind this? Because the enemy is now, that's what, that's what the enemy was accusing that Job would do. He'll do anything to be blessed by you, right? Wasn't that the, the accusation was, well, of course he's going to do all of this just as long as you bless him. And here what they're saying is, just confess and you'll be blessed. And, but Job inside is saying, I, I don't have anything to confess to that I know of. Here again, now chapter six, as we move into Job's response, can you just, you kind of feel for him because again, he's like, where did, you can almost see it. Where did that come from? Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. And on top of all of the physical suffering, like I said, that, that's described in graphic detail for us, lo- losing everything in a day, everything. And on top of that, again, the, the worst of the worst of the worst, all 10 of his children just, just wiped out, killed in a tragic accident. All of that. And he is saying, if you could only... If there was only some way to quantify the grief and the, the suffering and the, the heaviness that this is, it would be like taking all of the sand of the sea, wet sand that there is in the sea, and putting it on the, on the balance. And I guess I, when I read that, again, I, I've shared with you many times, I have, I have been so blessed by God. I have not experienced... <laughs> Anything even remotely close, anything that Job has gone through. 
And for the, the problem is so often we, when we come alongside someone, and again, even when we counsel, and even when we're having the right heart, we need to understand the first thing that we have to do is at least try to put ourselves into their situation. Understanding, again, that their whole life is led up to this moment. We don't know what their past has. We don't know what they've gone through and experienced and what that weight is to them. And so often we're so quick with a, with a response, so quick with, a, with a, an answer. And notice he says, therefore, my words have been rash. He understands that. He understands some of the things that he said back in chapter three were pretty rash. He's going to repeat some of them as we keep on moving because the weight is still there. But notice again, too, his misunderstanding of what this, what this still is. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray over his grass or does the ox low over his fodder? Can some, something tasteless be eaten without salt or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. I can't, I mean, to the point where I can't eat anything of this. And notice through all of this questioning and going through all of it, notice if any effect that Eliphaz's uh, advice has brought him is that he's starting to believe that maybe God is out for me. And Eliphaz has misrepresented God. Oh, here verse again, verse eight. Oh, that my request might come to pass. Oh, that God may grant my longing would that God were willing to crush me, that he would lose his hand and cut me off. But it is still my consolation and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. That verse is a, is a difficult one to, to translate from the, from the Hebrew and, and a, a lot of that. And uh, um, one of the commentaries that I read said, you know, it's, it's difficult to even put it into a sentence form. He felt that the heart behind, behind Job's comment, especially when taken in context, was in response to Eliphaz basically just saying, hey, just confess, just, just repent of whatever it is, and everything's going to be great again. He looks at his current situation and what it's really under and what has all brought it about. And he says, I... I'm fine. I can rejoice in an unsparing pain. I haven't denied. I haven't, I haven't taken God's words, the holy words, and tried to make them something that they're not. This is reality, what I'm facing. I'm not going to just paint it off into some other, other take a, you know, platitudes or whatever. This is the reality that I'm sitting in. And what is my strength that I should wait? It's, it's beyond anything that I have in my strength. What is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Is it my help? Is it that my help is not within me and that deliverance is driven from me? Verse 14, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Not 
not a theological debate. You know, sometimes when God allows us to come alongside someone who's really suffering, who's really going through a difficult, difficult time. And I've, I've learned this the hard way, going to counseling with people. Let them, let them get it out. Let them, let them just share. Let them get it. Get it. Don't correct every theological difference as they're going. Don't, don't feel like you have to correct everything. That, because again, therefore my words have been rash. There's things that are said and things that are expressed in anguish and in, and in suffering that don't necessarily even when, okay, when at, at the end of it all, we can talk about those things. But when we're in the middle of it, how it could have been so different if Eliphaz would have been, had the kindness of a friend, as opposed to someone who says, we got to set the record straight. We got to do it right now. We've investigated this. This is the problem. Deal with it. So that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Verse 14. We don't have any idea the, the power of our words to heal and to harm, to make things better or to make matters worse. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi. He understands it. He sees it. Like the torrents of the wadis which vanish. The waters in the, the wadi is the, the area where the waters flow in the desert. Deceitfully like a wadi, you walk up thinking you're going to have water refreshment there and instead you just find dirt. Which are, which are turbid because of ice in which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their course went, wind along. They go up into nothing and perish. The caravans of Tima looked. The travelers of Sheba hoped for them. They were disappointed, for they had trusted. They came there and were confounded. He was thinking, man, you guys have come. This is going to be a blessing. This is going to be refreshing. Instead, it's the opposite. Indeed, you have now become such. You see terror and are afraid. Interesting. It's like Job could see through something there. I wonder if he's on to something here. You see terror. You see what's going on with me, and you're afraid. And that's why you're putting God in this box. Because if God is in this little box that I can understand, that it's only because of sin and iniquity that something like that would happen. I just need to avoid sin and iniquity, and then I can avoid that. But what if God is bigger than that? What if God will take me, as we even sang earlier, and we were even asking God, take me into waters that are deeper than I've ever been, so that I have to trust you, so that I have to rely on you. And it's in those, and again, we're going to see when we get to the end, it's through all of this that Job's understanding of God is opened up to, in ways that he would have never been able to see otherwise. 
confining God, putting him into this box. He sees right through it almost immediately. You see terror, you see this, and you're afraid. It's got to fit into your little box so that you can stay righteous and be okay. Have I said, give me something or offer a bribe for me, for my wealth, or from your wealth? Or deliver me from the hand of the adversary? Or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants? Verse 24 is where he comes to them right now. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Show me how I have erred. Tell me. You've got it all figured out. I'm, I've been searching. I've been asking. I've been seeking. And I can't find it. You tell me. How painful are honest words. But what does your argument prove? Honest words sometimes are painful. But when we receive them and when we act on them, again, there's healing and that's where that can come. But he says, that's, that's a great truth. But what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words? Are you calling me a liar? When the words of one in despair belong to the wind? You would even cast lots for the orphans or barter for your friend. Now, please look at me. See if I lie to your face. Look at me. I'm telling you straight to your face. And here is why. Notice, desist now. Stop this. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. He says, my integrity is at stake. You guys are going around saying these things. And it's not true. And guys, that again is so so dangerous, so dangerous. I have had people come up and say, this is going on in that person's life because, oh my goodness. And I, I immediately knock that off right now. You do not know that. <laughs> I hope you haven't told anybody else that. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern calamities? I wanted to get through chapter seven. Okay, fasten your seatbelt. Is not man forced to labor on earth? Again, Job's still speaking. Are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wage. So am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But night continues. We talked of this last time. So much pain, so much anguish. He just wishes the night would be over, but it goes on and on and on. And I'm, am I continually tossing until dawn? My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. A weaver's shuttle that goes back and forth through the tapestry as it's being woven, understanding that life is short. And now he turns his attention away from, away from the guys, and he now starts addressing God. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. 
Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set your guard over me? And again, he's talk, talking to God. Why is it that, that, that it, why me? Why is it that you're watching over me and everything that I'm doing? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you frighten me with dreams and, and terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but breath. Verse 17, what is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me? nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle. I mean, it's like you're scrutinizing everything, even even if I, as I swallow. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Again, just the, the crying out, again, as I mentioned, his in the midst of his suffering, crying out. He, again, by his own admission, states that his words are rash, even to the point of not, not making sense. And this idea of that God's eyes are on him to, to, pour, out, to pour out his wrath, to every move is just met with this. And in the midst of trials and in the midst of suffering, we can feel that way. But know that that's not God. Turn over to Psalm chapter 8 real quickly. Because we see the same, the same sentiment, but from a different, a different angle. Psalm chapter 8. David writing, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? We know in Job's situation that it was not because of sin. It was not God punishing him. It was not God hitting him at every move. As a matter of fact, we know as we looked at this, and again, we cannot bring it all together and get all the whys answered. But we know that God put parameters on the things that were happening. And as I said, spoiler alert, it's good to keep plugging this in. God restores at the end. But. We need to understand again, when we look at times that we don't understand, we need to look at the things that we do understand. When we don't know what's going on, we look at the things that we do know about God, that he is only good, that he is all powerful, he is sovereign, and that he loves us. That perspective of Job in the midst of his suffering, you know, what is man that you, you know, basically that you won't leave me alone. But bottom line, guys, when we look at this and from David's perspective and us as, as born again believers who have the word of God, remember Job didn't have the written word and Job had some friends that are like, no, thanks, right? 
We have one another. We have the word of God. We can know what Job didn't in that moment. We can read the story of Job and we can see all of that. We can read the Psalm of David and like David say, the one, the almighty, all-powerful God who <laughs> all of the universe, the sun, the moon, and the stars with just the tips of his fingers. And that's just a, trying to give us some idea <laughs> that again, the reality of that is even, even infinitely understated. Who is man? Who am I that you would take notice of me in all of that? In the vastness of the universe, our planet is a speck. And I'm a speck on the speck. Who am I that you would take notice of me? That you would care for me? Know that God compassionately looks upon whatever situation that is that you're going through. And as a born again believer, he promised he will walk every step with you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. And as we talked last time, and again, a reminder, as Paul put it, this great reminder, if you're in the middle of it right now, he says, this momentary light affliction that we go through in this life is not worthy to be compared to the weight of eternal glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. We know that truth. Job didn't. We know that truth. So take heart if you are going through something, if you are in the midst of a battle. Again, the one thing that we could, that we could easily say is, man, mine isn't as big as Job's. Mine isn't, yeah, true, probably, but it's just as important to God. And if you know someone, as we move through this, don't be Eliphaz. <laughs> be, pray, listen. Pray. Don't misrepresent God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you again for your word, the power of it. Lord, I pray right now for anyone that is going through the midst of a trial, midst of a situation where the mountain in front of them is far greater than they could ever hope to get over. The, they feel that they are in waters so deep that they can't tread water much longer and they're going down. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them in this time, knowing that you are there. Lord, would you, would you comfort them, even in this moment, with the peace that passes understanding? Lord, would you use us as those you have comforted, to bring comfort to those in trial and in difficulty. Lord, you line up the appointments, but Lord, please put a, put a guard on our tongue that we would never misrepresent you. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Give us your word, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.